You're listening to the Successful Investor Podcast. Property investment advice and strategies showing you how to invest in property successfully. Now, onto the show. I'm your host, Anne-Marie Cross, and today I'll be chatting with Michael Sloan. Michael is an Australian-based expert on property investment and home buying, and he's a writer for NAB, National Australia Bank, and he has appeared on TV, on radio, and in print across Australia, and is the author of two books on safely investing in property. With over 20 years of experience advising everyday Australians on making safer, more informed decisions when it comes to creating a financial roadmap for their futures, we're lucky to have him sharing his wisdom with us on this three-part podcast series. Now, Michael is also the founder of Australia-wide property investment firm, The Successful Investor. Welcome to the show, Michael. Thanks for having me. Michael, over this uh, three-part podcast series, you're going to be sharing your best advice on property investment so that we can create wealth. But first, I'd love for you to tell us your story. Who is Michael Sloan? <laughs> well, I've had a, a varied and, and uh, long career. Um, left school of 15, started my business career really as a painter and decorator. I ran a uh, successful painting business in South Australia. But I really just wanted to change when I hit my 40s. So I'd always had an interest in property. I bought my first investment property was up when I was in my 20s. I'm happy to put my hand up and say I, I knew absolutely nothing about what I was doing at the time. I just blundered through it. I didn't even know that was tax implications in buying a property. Bought another one in my 30s and then in my 40s, um, decided to, I needed a life change, moved to Melbourne, started a new career and really fell into the property space, just something I'd always enjoyed doing. And there's nothing better than to gain practical experience and then be able to share the insights you've learned and I'm sure the gaps and, and the, the issues that you had to face. Now, Michael, I know that one of the core values that you have yourself personally and, of course, of your companies is that when you're working with clients, you want to really provide relevant information in a way that they can understand it so that your clients are able to confidently make the right decision for their circumstances specific to them and, of course, the situation that they're in. Now, I know that there's a common misconception that we all can assume with a little research, I can do it myself. <laughs> so what was your level of knowledge like when you first entered the property market? I know you said earlier that it wasn't a lot, but share a little bit more about that. It was, I was so naive. I, I went to an auction to buy my first property, which was a, a little railway cottage in Mangambia in South Australia. And the auctioneer completely manipulated me. He was pulling bids out of the trees and pushing the price up and uh, luckily, I, I did decide on how much I was going to pay, and then once I got there, I wouldn't go anymore. That figure, by the way, was a grand sum of $24,000 for this house. But then once it passed in, then it, they put a lot of pressure on me again to go ahead and offer more money. So I started to look into that a bit more and to find out more about practices involved in the industry and, and talk to people that I knew they had more knowledge about it than me. And I often look back and I think what I needed then is the version of me that I am now to give my younger self that advice and, and some guidance. And, mm. and that's what we, that's what we try and do here. We just become a guide for our clients and guide them through the process. You know, all the lessons that I've learned over the years, they're all my clients' lessons. Mm. They're not mine. You know, like you can't get that knowledge yourself. Mm -hmm. But in the early years in this industry, I met and interviewed 
over a thousand people. And I met people who had made quite a bit of money out of property. I met people who lost money. And I met people who could have changed their future, their financial future by investing, but they did nothing. Often they were too scared. And what struck me was almost none of them had a plan. And many of them didn't know what they were doing. You can buy an investment property and know very little about what you're doing or why you're doing it. And that's why so many people get it wrong. And it was the people who lost money that upset me the most. And that's when I wrote that first book, Cracking the Real Estate Code. And it's about some of the untoward practices in the industry. And, you know, I used to say to people, just toughen up and take charge. You need to get some knowledge so that you're in charge of the process, not the person trying to sell you the property. And I've had a lot of great feedback on that book over the years. People were saying, you know, they bought a property and then they read my book and they were able to get out of it. People that were going to buy very expensive courses and read my book and decided not to spend all that money. Mm -hmm. um, so it's been very gratifying helping people. And it really is what uh, motivates me to teach and to help and to have people be in a position to make an informed decision and to challenge people who say anything to them. And that's where I headed with the second book, The Formula, to put people in a position that no matter what someone said, they had enough knowledge to say, well, hang on a minute, what about this or what about that? So that they were more in control. When I started, I had no control. No. I was totally you know, manipulated and naive. I don't like to see that in people now. No. I love the way that you put this all into a book. And so often what we can do when we're out there in the market looking and researching is we can often assume that someone whom we are speaking to can give us the full picture that's specific to us, such as real estate agents, financial advisors. Now, we're not yeah. deterring away from their expertise, but their expertise is in their area, not necessarily right. the all-rounded. Speak a bit more about that because sometimes we can assume that someone's giving us the best advice, yes? That's right. I mean, look, fundamentally, there's a lot to buying an investment property, but it can be a pretty simple process. You can go to the, to the closest real estate agent to anywhere that you live in Australia and they will sell you a property and you can turn it into an investment. But if you talk to that local agent and say, could you do me a favor and let me know what the cash flow is on this property? How much is this property going to cost me every month out of my own pocket after tax breaks? They will just look at you with a blank look on the face. And so will most financial planners and many accountants. Good accountants can tell you what the cash flow is going to be, but most can't and certainly I've met very, very few real estate agents who know anything about property investment. And the other thing to keep in mind, this is what I talk about in Cracking the Code, is that people forget that the agent is not working for you. And that's especially hard when you get a really nice agent who's great at their job and they give you the impression they're on your side and they're working for you. But if they're a good agent, they're not working for you and they're not meant to be working for you. They're working for the vendor. Yes. So no matter what they say to you, you've got to have this little voice in your head that says, okay, they've just said that, but they're not working for me. They're working for the person selling the property. Let's dive a little bit deeper into that because I know in your book you say beware the property investor expert. You've talked about that they will often work for the vendor and not for you and all mm. may not be what it seems. What are some other things that we need to be aware of? You have to look very closely at people who tell you their way is the only way to invest. You know, people who make blanket statements and it happens a lot. A lot of people who put themselves out there as a property expert, they feel that they've got to have a niche. They've got to be the negative gearing guy. They've got to be the high capital growth 
person. They've got to be the positive cash flow person. And they all try and find this niche. So they become an expert and renowned for doing that thing. But what it ends up being is they end up having a one-size-fits-all rule. It's similar to buyer's agent in the inner city. Now, buyer's agent are very localized to their own area, and they know that area very well. So if you go to them and say, I want to buy an investment property, they'll just go straight to their local area that they know. They're not looking at the broader picture. So people who, who say, this is what you should do to invest. You should only buy houses and renovate. That's how you do it. You should only buy inner city high capital growth properties. That's false. So any blanket statements are flawed. And the formula is about working out what's right for you, working out your strategy that works for you. Yes. And there's some fundamentals now that very, very few people know that you have to follow, otherwise you can get it all wrong. Yes. Well, let's dive into that. I love that you've said there's no one particular way. Beware of the property expert, so-called property expert, that says this is the only way. Now, you've mentioned, you've hinted at the formula, and I know that you've got a formula for investing, uh, Michael, and it seems contradictory to, to me. So <laughs> let's share some thoughts on that. What is the formula? Yeah. What are some of those things, those principles that we need to know? Well, I've got a book called The Formula, <laughs> and the book then says there is no one formula, if you like, right. and the people need to create their own. So they need to look into aspects of their own financial situation and their own personal situation and say, well, what is going to work for me? What kind of cash flow do I need? What kind of price can I afford to spend? Uh, what's my personal situation as far as emergency funds? You know, a lot of people buy an investment property and leave themselves with no money left over. Mm -hmm. And that's just putting themselves in a vulnerable position. So getting in a position where you know exactly what you're looking for, what's going to work for you, maybe getting some guidance, which is what we do. Mm -hmm. Research the researcher. You know, you said before about people thinking they can do it themselves. And there's one thing about property is that we live in property and we think we know it because we live in it. And you know, even financial planners, they, they wouldn't let anybody go and spend ten, twenty thousand dollars in managed funds without their guidance. But their clients go and spend half a million dollars on an investment property without their guidance. So what I say to people is research the researcher rather than try and do it yourself. Whatever someone does in their profession in their life, they can't turn themselves into a property expert in two months. It just can't be done. And that's why so many people get it wrong. You know, there's so many good salespeople out there with a great story. You know, we were chatting in the office yesterday about a client who bought a student accommodation. And we talked about the great story around student accommodation and how, you know, there's so many students in a place like Melbourne. There's the properties often very close to the city in really good locations and near universities. The vacancy rate is very low. So there's this great story and the salespeople selling these properties build up that story so people get really excited about about the potential of this investment property. But you know, the best result I've seen in 20 years of anybody buying student accommodation is that they unsold it for the same amount of money they paid for it five years later. That's the best result I've ever seen. So they've got a great story, but they're a nightmare of an investment property. These are all things, of course, Michael, that unless we're aware of, we can't make informed decisions, the pros and cons. And one of the things I'm hearing is that 
yes, it needs to be relevant to our specific situation, the market, a lot of different factors come into play and unless we're made aware of it, it's hard for us to make that clear informed decision. Let's dive deeper into that because I know that this is a key area that you want to educate people around. You've already mentioned a few things, but what are some of the things you often see people getting stuck and ending up with an investment that at the end of the time when they come to sell it, they're nowhere near the expectations that they originally thought. What are some of those key things? We have a very strong philosophy that if you invest in anything, you need to have an exit strategy. And with property, clearly the only exit strategy really is to sell one day. Now, when you sell, who do you want to appeal to? Do you only want to appeal to investors who are looking at the return and the rent? And so they're, they're just, they just care about getting it for the absolute cheapest price they can get it. Or do you also want to appeal to homeowners? People who want to buy your property because they want to live in it as a family. And they're the people who will pay more for it. So our philosophy is that you buy homeowner quality properties as an investment. Now, a lot of people in our industry will just say that's false because that's not what they're selling. And they say things like, it's just an investment property. You don't have to live in it. And who cares if it's got low ceilings? Who cares if the fixtures and fittings are low quality? It's just an investment property. But when those properties get resold, like student accommodation, holiday accommodation, service departments, hotel rooms, I've seen backpackers rooms being sold on realestate.com with, you know, wonderful pros about what a great investment it would be. And it was a 14 square meter room in a backpackers. Wow. You know, so all of these properties, they failed the number one test. Can you live in it and can you sell it to a homeowner? And is it homeowner quality? Because you might get a, a very small studio apartment in, in the city. You can live in it. It's not an accommodation, but it attracts students. Mm -hmm. well, that's still not the kind of property you should be looking for. Yes. So homeowner quality property in the right location. If it's in the city, it's in the city close to the city. But if it's further out, you know, you've got to have the jobs, transport, you know, the education, the parks, and they're the things that, that we look for mm. constantly mm -hmm. for our clients. Yeah, that absolutely makes sense. You hear that regularly, don't you? Don't become attached, emotionally attached to the property yeah. because it's not where you're going to live. But eventually, and I love the principle that you say you follow, and that is, you know, what is the end in mind? What is the ultimate goal? Because that yeah. will often determine the steps that we take and again, as we've mentioned uh, on the show, and you've said it's so important to know what our specific circumstances are. Something else that will often uh, come up in conversation, I'd love you to share some insights around that, is when we're told, you know, you can borrow that. And, and then we end up over borrowing and that can be a, a dire situation to find ourselves in too. What insights can you share around that? Always have a buffer. You know, we've had a couple of situations in our life, my wife Laurel and I, when, you know, we had a few properties, Laurel got diagnosed with cancer for the second time. She was in a very high paying job and she had to leave instantly. Um, and she was contracting. So there was no, no sick pay. There was no leave of any kind. It was, she was earning a really high income on the Friday and she wasn't earning any income on the Monday. And so when that happens in your life, you've got to have something to fall back on. And that's the other thing that I talk about is that. You know, for a lot of people, you say to them, where's your security? Where's your nest egg? Where's your safety mat? And they say, oh, it's in the equity in my home. And I say, do you have access to it? Can you go to the bank today 
and pull $40,000 out. And they say, no, it's in my equity. I say, well, if something happens in your life, if you lose your job or you have an accident and you need some money, you go to the bank and say, now I need some money against my home. And they'll say, no, we won't give you that money because something just happened to you. You have to get what you need when you can. So when you're working and you've got the access, go to the bank and set up a, a safety net and determine for yourselves what it should be, three, four, five months of your income that you just put aside with no plans to use, but it's sitting there for emergencies. Because I can tell you, after my wife got over cancer, I had cancer as well, and I can tell you that when you're sitting there with the oncologist and he's giving you you know, 60% chance, you're better, 40% chance, you're not, then you don't want to be thinking about money. No. And you don't want to be thinking, gee, I wish I went to the bank and got some money in reserve to get me through this. You want to know that you've got that money sitting there. Yes. So we'll happily say to people, no, you can't invest yet or borrow more money, which seems odd, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So the standard way to borrow is at 80%. But if borrowing at 80%, means you have no money left if you buy an investment property, then borrow 85% and have a buffer left over. But do whatever you can. Don't leave yourself in a vulnerable position. Yeah. Because I've just seen it too many times where people have, a whole future has fallen apart. They don't have insurances. They're, they're buying, they buy the wrong kind of property. They buy a property that drains their money. So every month they're forking out more than they want to. So then they cut down on their insurances because their cash flow is so bad and they're trying to hang on to this investment property or two. And they're so vulnerable. If anything happens to them, the whole thing falls apart. If you can't afford all the insurances you need, you can't afford to buy an investment property. That's the bottom line. Yeah, and I know in episode two, Michael, you're going to spend some time and really explaining some of the ways we need to be mindful of and the strategies to ensure that we have solid risk management. But that really goes to show, you know, what's the end in mind? What is your ultimate goal? In the process of achieving that, we need to have that buffer. That's very important too. And something you mentioned, and I'd love to just dive deeper into this just a little bit, and I know at the end of the show, you've got an incredible resource that you've put together, and we'll share more about how people can access that to help them make the right decisions on the right property. But you said they've made the decision about the property. It's the wrong kind of property. What are some decisions around that? What do we need to know about the wrong property or whether it's the right property for us? Often people will listen to others and it can be a fatal mistake. So just because somebody has been successful with an investment and they tell you about it, doesn't mean that you should rush out and buy the same kind of property. I'll give you an example. My son, Josh and his partner, Fiona, bought a, uh, an apartment in Richmond in, in Melbourne. They've been in there for about 18 months now. The commercial space, which is, you know, it's going to be a cafe, it's going to be an office, it's going to be something down the bottom, you know, and you see mm -hmm. it down the bottom of a new apartment complex. That was on the market for six or eight months before it sold. It was sold in the region of 1.7 million. That's what it was advertised for. I don't know what they got for it. And that's still vacant. So a year later, someone's paid 1.7 million and it's still empty. Now, I don't know who the buyer is, and maybe that's nothing for them. And if they're a very high net worth person in 10 or 20 years' time, they might look back and say, what a wonderful investment that was. But for the average person, and some, you know, when I say average people, some people think, well, an average person can't spend that kind of money. But some people do mm -hmm. with the super fund and things like that. 
So for an average person to buy commercial property, for instance, they just can't cope with that kind of vacancy. And it's so common. Look at any empty offices or shops near where you live and notice when they become vacant and notice when they're, when they're occupied again. So most property investors invest in residential property. They start to panic if their property is empty for six weeks. Yes. Whereas commercial property it can be six months or nine months or 18 months. So that's a good example of someone just following what someone else has done. And, and even, you know, there can be professionals like accountants, financial planners. We've had great success with buying in a city high value properties, mm -hmm. you know, the high capital growth, but higher dollar cost properties. And so they'll say to people, these are the only kind of properties that you should invest in, but they can afford to buy those properties. And they can afford the cash flow that you need to support those properties. Mm -hmm. Because often the people they're talking to, because I have a blanket rule, which is what we talked about before, only buy these kind of properties. And the people that they talk to, they don't have that cash flow that someone on a higher income has got. Yes. So people just have to, like I keep saying, and, and I mentioned in the book, just question people. So just because someone has an opinion about what's right, it doesn't mean it's right. It's, for right. You. it's their for opinion. You. Yes, totally agree. We've mentioned a couple of things that we need to be mindful of, we need to be wary of so that we don't make the wrong decision. We want to make the right decision. Now, I know that you'll often say that there's some people that could very well invest in property, yet their assumption is, we're not ready, we're not in the right position, yet they are. So I'd love you just to speak into that a little bit. What are some maybe some case studies that you've been able to help people invest when originally they thought that they weren't ready yet? You know, we absolutely love doing that, especially with young people that we help get into the property market. There are ways of doing it that most people just have no idea. And the most people I've helped buy one property was four siblings who at the time, it was a few years ago, they put something like $12,000 together each. But they had four incomes when they went to the bank. So to the bank, they looked incredibly strong. So they bought one property between four of them. I was a mortgage broker back then. And so we organized for the loan to be split four ways. Mm -hmm. So each of those individuals could pay off their selection of the debt as much as they, as they could and really that came about because one of my children was talking to someone who's saying we'd love to get in the property market and it's never going to happen. And they said, don't have a free chat with my dad and you never know. And so one of them came in and I planted that seed. They went out, spoke to all the other, you know, their brothers and sisters mm -hmm. and came back and they did it. And then, then we put some agreements in place about how long they had to keep it before it was sold. And then they all paid off their own section or didn't pay off their section of the loan as their personal circumstances demanded. And so that got them a foothold into the property market. Another one of a lot of the uh, children or young people that we deal with are clients' children, you know, who come in to see us. And um, one came in who, you know, lived at home with his mum. He had, he'd saved like $20,000 or something like that. And he was just coming in for some long-term guidance. What will I need in the future? How long do you think it will take me? And then we started talking about his mum and he said, oh, my mum's retired school teacher. She's, she worked for three years as a teacher. She's retired now, but she realises that she could have invested when she was working and she didn't. And now she's looking at the future 
saying, oh, I'm just going to be on the pension for a long time. And so we chatted about that some more. And so Alex was in a position where he had the income. He lived at home with his mum. His mum had a property with equity. We got them to join forces. And there's a, a loan called a family pledge loan where a parent can take some of the equity in one of their properties and they can say to the bank, you can use this equity as a deposit for my child to buy a home or investment property. So that's what we did. So now they're both in the property market. Whereas when she wasn't working anymore and he didn't have enough deposit, neither of them in the property market. Now his house is not even finished yet and he's had substantial capital growth. So they're looking at it saying, why isn't everybody doing this? I think it's one of those things, unless you have the right information that's uh, relevant to your specific circumstances and you can speak with someone such as yourself to give you an all-round overview of the pros and cons, then you can make a decision that you can feel comfortable with and know yeah. that whatever happens, unexpected things in the future, which often do happen, that you're able to ride those waves through that, of course, and then at the end of the day, achieve the best goal and outcome that you had determined. Michael, we have only scratched the surface today. We've covered a lot of information and I know your team has created an information sheet which is titled What Properties to Avoid. Now that's available for everyone to access on your website at thesuccessfulinvestor.com.au forward slash podcast series thesuccessfulinvestor.com.au forward slash podcast series. And of course, episode one, this has been all about successful investing, getting to know the basics and getting started. In episode two, you're going to be sharing more insights into risk avoidance, what we need to know in order to minimize risks. And of course, in episode three, we're going to learn more about strategies to increase our success chances our chances of success and I can't wait for you to share more on each of those episodes uh, so thanks once again for sharing your insights it's my pleasure you've been listening to the successful investor podcast for more property investment advice so you can successfully build your property portfolio go to www.thesuccessfulinvestor.com.au forward slash podcast series that's thesuccessfulinvestor.com.au forward slash podcast series This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.